Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. Look around your home or office or even your car. Everything there was designed, albeit not always well. Sometimes with an eye towards function, sometimes looking at form, and sometimes even with thought into the human interface. But wouldn't it be great if everything was designed with equal parts, engineering, aesthetics, and a real understanding of how human beings will interface with whatever it is? That methodology, that combination of humanity and art and engineering, is what's called today design thinking. It's an important part of Silicon Valley's disruption and progress. But imagine if the same concepts could also apply not just to computers or a mouse or a phone, but to your entire life. In many schools today, these ideas of design thinking are combining with project-based curriculum and human-centered collaboration and producing not only products, but the future leaders of the 21st century. We're going to talk about this today with two of the leaders in this field of design thinking. Bill Burnett is executive director of the design program at Stanford. He directs the undergraduate and graduate program in design and teaches at the D School. He's worked for startups and Fortune 500 companies, including seven years at Apple. Dave Evans is an adjunct lecturer in the product design program at Stanford. He's a management consultant and a co-founder of Electronic Arts. It is my pleasure to welcome Bill Burnett and Dave Evans to the program to talk about designing your life, how to build a well-lived, joyful life. Bill, Dave, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us, Jeff. It's great to have yeah, you thank here. Thank you very much. Great to have you here. Bill, let's start with you and talk a little bit about how you define design thinking in the context of, of the programs at Stanford and the kind of work that, that you guys do. Yeah, you know, your introduction was an excellent uh, overview. Um, we, we used to, you know, the, the program at Stanford is about 50 years old. Uh, back in the, in the 60s, a guy named Bob McKim created this idea that engineers should learn about psychology and anthropology and about aesthetics and, and you know, broaden, you know, the, the notion that a designer had to, had to really be human-centered. They had to understand the human problem before they started designing. And, you know, zoom forward to about 10 years ago when David Kelly, who's our senior professor and the guy who started the D school and also started IDEO, the big uh, innovation firm, probably the largest innovation consultancy in the world. Um, he, he said, you know, this method we've evolved, this human-centered method is really just a new way of solving problems. It's an innovation methodology. We can teach it to anybody. So now at the D school, we teach business school students and law school students and medical school students. We open up their creativity. We give them these new tools and it becomes you know, another way to do strategy or another way to innovate in medicine. So design thinking is an innovation methodology. A little different. A lot of design schools, you know, they'll teach graphic design or industrial design, uh, a craft-based, skills-based program. And those are fantastic. Stanford's always been a little different. We, we teach it as an innovation methodology in a way of, of solving, uh, finding good problems and then solving them. Talk a little bit, uh, Dave, about the problem-solving part of it, because in many cases, it's not always solving the problem that immediately presents itself. I mean, it goes to the Steve Jobs discussion about people don't always know what they want. By the same token, we don't always know what the problem is. We think we know what the presenting problem is. That's not always the core problem. Exactly. 
in design, we say we build our way forward. And design thinking is different than engineering thinking when you really can solve the problem. If you want to build a bridge or put an astronaut on the moon, you know exactly what you're trying to get done, and you can use the science to get there. But if you're trying to create an experience no one's ever had, particularly your own experience of your own life, you're going into this place we've never been before called the future, collaborating with people we haven't met yet. So let's have a little humility in the face of that and make it interesting and be curious about discovering what it is we really want. So the first step is curiosity and having some empathy for both ourselves and the world around us. Go out asking some questions, finding out more than the things we discover that are most interesting. Let's try those and do these experiential um, prototypes that allow us to start framing what it is we really want to be doing. So by problem finding, we don't mean you have no idea. What we mean is you're going to refine what you're really going after by having these encounters and experiences. And it's pretty fun and interesting if you do it that way. And Bill, talk about it in terms of the, the different legs of the proverbial stool, in terms of the technology, the kind of engineering side, the business side, because at the end of the day, something has to pencil out from all of this, plus the human value aspect of it. Yeah, you know, if you look at just the core of design thinking, we say there's, you know, there's the intersection of technology, human needs, and business needs is where you find the most interesting solutions. I think it's also true in life design. You know, just because just you want to do something doesn't mean the world's going to pay you for it. Just because just it's, quote, your passion doesn't mean anyone cares. So you really have to be um, thoughtful about designing something that does have a use in the world and that does have something, um, you know, that's, that's kind of current, maybe not technically current, but current in your field. So, you know, we encourage people to take very small steps. This isn't about radically changing your life necessarily. Take small steps, be curious, have a bias to action, the mindsets to designers, bias to action, reframe the problem. Dave was just talking about it's not always the problem you start with. That's the interesting problem or the problem where there's a lot of interesting solutions. So bias to action, reframe the problem, and then try stuff. Build prototypes to see what's going to work. And that's, that's what we did at Apple. That's what I've done in all the design projects I've been on, and that's what works in life design. And Dave, when, when you think about this in, in the way Bill was just talking about, is it important or not to think about the timelessness of it, or do we live in a world today where every idea, everything is essentially beta? I think yes. Is it timeless? <laughs> yes. Uh, and is it beta? I mean, the question is timeless. You know, what do I do with the rest of my life? We, we, every situation we bump into, every age, every circumstance of person in, in group or individual that we speak with finds that a compelling question. Most people think their life is pretty interesting to them. So that's timeless. Now, the answer is change over time, even for an individual life. And even as technology changes or culture changes, the way we do things change, you know, that's fine. But change is the only constant. And so the answers we're finding are good for the time that they fit. And so people discover over time, you know, when they start getting restless or something new comes up or an interest is either, either a restlessness is pushing them or an interest is pulling them, it might be time to do some redesign. So you don't have to worry about whether or not it's timeless or not. Your own experience of your life will be your guide. Don't worry about the fact that things are going to change. It's just going to stay interesting. And Bill, talk about that restlessness in the broader context of, of perhaps, you know, other things that are going on in people's lives, in society, in the world, etc. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of data out there that's kind of um, kind of amazing. Something like uh, Gallup did a poll and something like 87% of the people report themselves as being disengaged at work. They don't care about their work. They're just doing it for the paycheck. 
Um, the huge social changes have happened in the workplace. And we're not just work designers, we're life designers, but, but work's the thing you spend a lot of time at. And, you know, the careers are getting shorter. Most people are going to have two or three. My millennial, certainly the folks who work at Stanford will have at least two or three completely different careers if, if the statistics hold. Um, there's no long term commitment from companies anymore. People don't even expect that they'll work at the same company for the same time. And, and I think people have also, you know, in the more modern age of working are, are demanding that work be meaningful and purposeful. So all those changes are forcing people to look at, you know, the old, the same old job that they had before in a new way. And we, and we don't want them to be frustrated and we don't want them to be stuck. We want to give them tools that allow them to, you know, evolve into something that's more meaningful and interesting for them. To what extent then, Bill, does the, the sort of shorter attention span world that we live in play into this? Well, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a pro and con to everything. The shorter, you know, it used to be when I got out of school, if you, if you change jobs every three or four years, there might be something wrong with you, right? And nowadays, I mean, I think people look at that as a positive experience, like learning rapidly and um, evolving their career. So I think the world has a little more permission to experiment than it used to. I think the world is more open to the fact that people are going to be um, searching a little bit longer before they find maybe the thing they want to spend, you know, some portion of their career time on. But I think that's actually a positive because I think, um, you know, we've known for a long time in social science that you don't really form your adult self until your, your mid-30s. But everybody seems to be in a hurry to figure, you know, figure, one of the dysfunctional beliefs we talk about in the book is, hey, you're supposed to have this figured out by now. And, you know, and by now it's 25 or 27 or whatever it is for you. But if you don't have it figured out by then, boy, you're late and there's something wrong. And it's just not true. You're never late. The other part of it, uh, Dave, is how it impacts the way we learn today and how we need to look at education, even from the earliest grades, with respect to this curiosity you've been talking about and this kind of design thinking being inculcated and this kind of curiosity really early on. Exactly. And, you know, we teach in pedagogical terms what's called uh, PBL, problem-based learning. You know, we don't give any tests in the design program. We give projects. You actually learn by doing. Uh, and there's still, there's still book learning. You know, I still need to learn math a certain kind of way or maybe history. I've got to get the facts. But a lot of things you learn by doing them and experiencing them, particularly experiencing them collaboratively. And that is now increasingly being understood as, as the way to go. And it's filtering all the way down into high schools and junior highs um, because we want to become people, not just heads full of information stuck on a body as a transport system. We're trying to help form people, not just load brains. Um, so that process is working well, and it really has become uh, the beginning of what's turning out to be a, a dramatic reform movement in education that we're part of, and we're happy to be a part right. of. And Bill, talk about what you're seeing, both of you, and Bill, start with you, what you're seeing in terms of kind of the clash of approaches, because there still are a lot of I guess baby boomers are sort of those in the workplace and, and, and in, even in education that are taking a more old school approach to this. And of course, we have millennials coming along that are embracing much of what we've been talking about and the right. clash and the conflicts and the friction that we're seeing as a result of that today and what the, what the results are. Well, you know, I work with lots of companies who come to Stanford and they want to hire our students or, they, or they're interested in these methodologies and um, certainly in the designing your life stuff as well. 
Um, and and yet they say they report that boy the millennials are a little hard to manage because they you know they 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 quit after a few years. Um, my, my point is, look, this is all the research says. This is one of the most purpose-driven generations. They'll work their buns off. Some of my students have started amazing companies, um, companies that are very very innovative. But you got to give people, and that's not just millennials. I think more people are saying, look, if my job's not meaningful, if I can't connect the dots between what I'm doing and something I care about then it's just not going to be important to me. And so we run into two kinds of, I guess, sort of management philosophies. The, the new talent management philosophy is, look, everybody's going to be designing, you know, an optimization of their own experience here at the company. And, and if, we, if we want to be part of that conversation, uh, that's great. And if we don't want to be part of the conversation, we won't find out it's not working until they quit. And so most, most of the, I think, the forward-leaning companies are thinking, um, hey, we want to be part of your life design conversation. We want to understand what's important. Um, maybe we can fit, maybe, maybe our company can, is a good fit for you. Maybe it's not, but you know, the, the better we are at having this conversation in the open, the happier the employees will be. And there's a lot of evidence that that's true. Sure, there's still old line companies that are like just head down, keep working, don't ask any questions. We'll tell you what to do. But more and more, not just more, more and more people are saying that's not going to work for me. Um, and, and, you know, it's not even that this is all blue, white-collar jobs. Blue-collar jobs, lots of, everybody wants to have a life that works. Everybody wants to have something that they go to work for in the morning. They get them up on a Monday morning, and they're not going, ah, oh, crap, i got to go to work. They want to say, hey, I'm really looking forward to whatever's going to happen today. So we're just trying to push the, the culture in that direction by suggesting you can't engineer that kind of solution. You can't plan that kind of solution. Um, because things are going to change too quickly, but you can design it. Dave? The changes that are going on in the world, and Bill said most of all, I'll just reaffirm that. I think what people are encountering is how do I do this together? And that doesn't mean that everybody's going to be living into their passion or changing the world. You'll hear that a lot from people. Um, there are jobs that you do for money. There are careers you do for professional mastery. There may be even callings that you do for, for personal fulfillment or meaning-making in the world. And people have honest, legitimate labor and involvement in the world at all three of those levels. That even if you're just doing the job for money, it's got to be an honest job. It's got to be something that uses my skills. I've got to feel good about that. And then design the rest of my life for these other things that matter to me happen over here, over there. So there are all kinds of different lifestyles that people are living, and they're all valid. There's not just one way to live. But even so, you want to design it. You want to have it be purposeful so that when somebody asks you the question, particularly the person in the mirror looking back at you at 2 in the morning, ask the question, hey, is this working for you? You want to be able to say, yes, and here's why. Um, so the, the, the old school of, you know, whether it's self-management, just do what your mother told you, or, you know, boss management, do what the boss says, that's hardly working for anybody anymore. Bill, talk a little bit about the, the sort of difference between kind of the corporate culture and startup culture and why it's, it's so appealing in, in the startup world. Yeah. You know, I've done two startups where I went out with a co-founder and raised money and stuff. It's, it's fun. It's exciting. I mean, I can describe the best days as an entrepreneur as being so exciting and so interesting and so fulfilling because you're really working on something you believe in. But, you know, I can also describe the day when we didn't have any money and I had to lay off half the staff. And I can describe the day when, you know, we had three venture capital meetings and everybody laughed at us. So, you know, startups aren't for everybody. But I think what the attraction is in, in smaller companies is that the, the, the connection between what I do and what the impact on the company is is more obvious. 
if I work at a very large company, and I'm doing some work right now with uh, IBM, and IBM, by the way, although it's 400,000 people, is doing some of the most innovative work in design thinking of any company I know of. But boy, when there's 400,000 people, how do I tell if what I did today moved the needle or had any impact? It's just harder to see. When things are smaller, I think people um, can connect the dots more easily, and they find the work to be more purposeful. Although... You know, the other thing is in those, in smaller organizations, people work harder. They, I mean, here in the Valley, people aren't working 40 hour weeks. They're working 55, 60 hour weeks continuously. And it's probably too much, you know, uh, because it, it, it upsets the balance with other things in their life design. And so we have a little dashboard in the book, which is, you know, work, um, play, love, and health. And you gotta, you gotta manage your health and your, your mental and, and physical health. But you also got to make sure you've got, you know, relationships in your life and you've got play in your, in your world, not just work all the time. So, you know, people um, uh, might maybe romanticize the startup a little, um, but uh, if it's a good fit, um, you know, sometimes it's a, it's a great way to reboot your energy. How does all of this fit, Bill, into a world in which teams and collaboration in almost every aspect of life is so important today and so critical? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. When I, when I went through design education and when I was trained as a designer and engineer, it was all, you know, you worked by yourself. It was the lone designer in the studio coming up with the idea. We, don't, we haven't taught it that way for 20 years. Designers, you know, if you're going to work on any kind of an interesting problem that's, that's big or hard, you need lots of people on your team. You need specialists in lots of different areas. And I think that's just in, in the complex world of business and the complex world of life, uh, it's great. It, it, you can't solve any problem by yourself. First of all, there's lots of information that other experts have that, you know, are part of your, just going to be part of your life design. You're going to go out and have those conversations. But also the ability to work well on a team and to collaborate with others and to learn from others, to have that kind of natural curiosity where you're willing to say, hey, I don't know something. Um, and I want to go talk to other people who do. I think that's that kind of openness really um, enriches your life. And so I think the, the move towards collaborative uh, work and, and more team-based project work is actually a really positive um, thing. And people report that they like working that way. They like our classes much better than they like the lecture classes. And they like working that way because it's more engaged. Is there too much focus today, Dave, coming back to education a little bit, on, on all this focus on science and technology and engineering and math, and not enough of the, of the empathy and the human values that are so much a part of what we've been talking about? Well, there's certainly that emphasis in the way we're talking about education. I think sometimes when we talk about it, we talk about that more starkly than, in fact, is going on on campuses. Mm -hmm. But there is a huge emphasis on the, on the technology end. And it's become a technological world, so technical competency is increasingly a prerequisite to being a player in the world. And that's true, but it is imbalanced. And we need to be forming human beings, not just loading up smart brains, you know, as I was saying. Um, an example of this would be um, we have an award for the very, very top engineering students at Stanford. And we get them together once a year, and it's a lovely event. And they get to bring the high school teacher that was most influential to them to come and celebrate their success. And we go around the room and ask the high school teachers to stand up and say something about the student that has now become one of the top students in the top engineering school in the world. And it turns out when I've gone to that event, everybody brings the drama teacher, the creative writing teacher, the person who taught them poetry. They don't bring the math teacher. They don't bring the physics teacher. I mean, one or two of those maybe. 
But overwhelmingly, these best engineers were most influenced by the people that helped them become better humans, understand the human story, live into narrative, and become you know, emotionally intelligent, not just technically intelligent. So we need to be giving people balanced educational experiences. And what was, in your experience, Dave, in looking at sort of the broad scope of, of Silicon Valley and, and these things we've been talking about, when did design thinking suddenly catch on? Why is this a new phenomenon, this, this human value aspect of it? And why now? What happened? Well, I think it's really been going on for a very long time. You know, we, we were absolutely, you know, gosh, many decades ago now, in 1979, 1980, I was the first mouse product manager at Apple working with the very first company David Kelly built to do the design work with Steve Jobs on how would people have a human-computer interface that wasn't this horrible command language typing thing. Um, so that was decades ago. Um, and now it's, and it wasn't hot all over the world. Not everybody talked about it. Uh, two things have happened. As the global markets have shifted, you know, what North America gets to contribute is innovation. So if you can figure out a way to be an innovator and deliver innovation on a regular basis, that is a massive competitive advantage. And so it turns out design thinking is the way to do that. And then David Kelly, you know, our senior professor of design at Stanford and the founder of IDEO, did a brilliant thing. He took an idea, human-centered design, that we've had around for over 50 years, and he rebranded it as design thinking. So the people would understand, it's, it, it, you don't have to know how to draw, you don't have to be a sculptor, you don't have to have these craft skills highly honed. You can just learn a way of thinking that's highly transferable and will, in fact, facilitate having more innovative ideas that really work for people. And that idea took off. So right when the world wanted innovation, and then suddenly we realized that design is just a way of thinking that lots of people can learn, those two things combine together, and boom, it explodes. And now we're living in the, in, in the benefit of that. And Bill, it really must have touched something, I mean, vis-a-vis the popularity of your class at Stanford and, and the popularity, the immediate popularity of this book. Yeah, well, you know, we're, we're, we're very excited about that, and we're also pretty humbled by, by the reception because we were... You know, we don't know when you write something if it's gonna if it's gonna capture the ideas. We know the class works. We've studied it. We've worked on it really hard. We know that the mid-career people we've worked with, people in their thirties and forties, have gotten a lot of value out of applying these ideas and these little simple tools and trying things. And we've worked with folks, you know, who are retiring or in an encore career situation, and it's worked there. Um, uh, what we tried really hard to do in the book was to make it accessible and easy to read. It's full of stories that are real people, you know, disguised, obviously, but real people who've gone through the same kind of struggles that we, we hear over and over again. So I think, uh, every, like they said in the beginning, everybody thinks the rest of their life is interesting and important. A lot of people are stuck. They just don't know how to move forward. Um, maybe they have to because something's changed, their company's, you know, changing or something's changing. Or maybe they just want to because they feel like there's more in them that's not being expressed. But those those forces and then the idea of coming up with something where you can set the bar really low, try simple experiments called prototypes and move your way forward and building your way forward, it seems like, you know, that's so accessible to people that they're really responding. You know, why is this catching on? Well, one of the things that's going on is something else that's going on is not catching on. There are ideas floating around, you know, we call them dysfunctional beliefs, like, you know, you should know by now, or you should have become your best self, or what is your... Pa-? People are being, in a sense, sort of beat up 
by ideas that are floating around out there and they're not working for them. So like figuring out my passion, that's not necessarily working for me. Or I should be living my one best life and there isn't one best life. There's more than one of you in there. Which, which of a variety of good lives are you going to experiment with? So people have been trying things that aren't working. And what we hear back is, you know, when I read this book or, or when I came to this workshop, I left, I just, I was so relieved because this sounds doable. This sounds like something I could have some hope in. We've been giving people ideas that are hopeless because they're just not working. So one of the reasons we're catching on is some bad ideas are frankly failing, and they probably deserve to. And Bill, what's the nexus between all of this and design thinking and psychology being brought into it? Well, you know, uh, we use design thinking as the framework, and that's how we move people through this process. But you know, at Stanford, you got to have research. You can't just make stuff up. So we've been <laughs> working a lot with a lot with people from the Center for the Study of Adolescence. Bill Bayman's one of our great colleagues, and he's a fantastic researcher. He looks at the development of, of young adolescents. Uh, he studies them all the way to 26 or 27. And we also look at the positive psychology work. People like Martin Seligman, Chekson Mahai, who who invented or kind of described the concept of flow, being in the zone. And we look at um, the research from Gallup and other organizations about job satisfaction. So when you tie that research, we try to take that research out of the university labs and into something that's practical for people. Um, but they can, they can rest assured that we're not making this up, that there are ways of developing a life that you feel you are thriving into or you're joyful into. Uh, the work of Martin Seligman in, in that area is great. Um, the idea of using, you know, your experience of flow to point you to peak, peak experiences in your life where your strengths are being utilized well, that, that results in high job satisfaction. Um, the notion that you're not looking for the perfect job, you're looking for the job you can make perfect. And how do you choose into, into your life that comes from the work of, you know, Dan, Dan Gilbert and Barry Schwartz and others. So this is pretty well-researched stuff, and we're just trying to make it um, accessible to people. And finally, Dave, what is designed the field of design thinking and, and your classes, etc.? What do you have to do to sort of stay ahead of the curve, to keep up with changes around it? You know, that in a sense takes care of itself. What we have to do is pay attention. We, we, it really is curating your curiosity. You can become more and more effective at being curious. So we just keep our head up and look around every now and then as well as if all we did was just, just keep working on this class and teach more students and maybe get the book out. You know, we look up and we listen to what people are saying to us. So when just somebody just called and said, well, you know, I, I'm going to try working on this with returning veterans. Another person says, I'm going to take this out into the prison world and work with people coming out of prison. Can they redesign their life in a post-prison way and, and reduce recidivism? We have a colleague who's taken this into the community college, working with working class people, working full-time during the day, going to school at night, trying to change their lives. You know, we can stay abreast of things, and we're talking to companies. We do sit down with people who run HR organizations, and what are they running into with employees? What we do is, is we try to practice what we preach, which is stay curious, lean into it, have conversations, and that invites us to take the next step. Right now, our possibility of to-do lists, where, where we take the life design lab, is way longer than our resources, and that's a good problem that we're going to try to keep having. Bill Burnett, Dave Evans, the book is Designing Your Life, How to Build a Well-Lived, Joyful Life. Bill, Dave, I thank you both so much for spending time with us. Jeff, thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you.